Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right, so today we'll talk about uh, communication. I think I still think we can get both these done, communication and mating systems. Um, and still be time to talk if you have any questions. So I think we're going to check. Um, Animals actually spend a lot of time communicating. This can be for defense. So they may be communicating to other members of their species, making um, alarm calls. Oftentimes those alarm calls are to uh, family members, in essence. Okay? They can be doing mating calls or mating dances. Oh, by the way, the defense can also be to other species saying, uh, I'm here, you know, trying to scare them away, that kind of thing, okay? Uh, mating dances, calls, typically these are done by males towards females. Uh, almost always. And typically, we should understand, you know, usually there's more invested by a female, so it makes sense. Okay, they could be doing food calls. Uh, vervet monkeys, for example, do different kinds of calls depending upon the kind of quality of the food they're getting. Um, you can little chicks even do different food calls depending upon the kind of food they're getting. So they're giving out information that way. Now, to say it's communication, you need to send their own receiver. So, so it, it, it's like if the, if the chick food calls in the woods and no one hears it, is it communicating? No, it's just doing a food call. So they have to have you have to have a sender and a receiver. Correct? So that's usually the way you look at it. We're looking at evolutionary change and adaptive value are both, of course, of these kind of things. Okay. So the dance language of the honeybees is probably the neatest. One of the reasons I wanted to make sure we talked about this is that this is just one of the coolest things that's ever happened, that people have ever discovered, is how honeybees communicate to each other about food sources. There's a honeybee, it was liparous. The function, of course, is to locate, uh, sorry, to communicate the location of a food source. Because as we talked about the other day, it was bumblebees, but even honeybees, whatever, they go out, they forage, they come back. And because they're all related, telling all your super sisters where your food is, where the food is, is a good idea. So hive members interpret the dance they do, so it's an interpretive dance. Thank you. Um, and they can then go out and go to that same food source, which is pretty nifty. And depending on the dance that they do, that the dancer does, they'll either go out at least in the right direction or the right direction and distance to the food. So they can really, they're communicating very complicated information. Okay. So it's either, it's over there, or it's over there 15 meters. Just learn about that, let's see. It's over there 80 meters. Use the wrong number, you'll see why in a second. Okay. If the food source is less than 50 meters away, what they do is what's called the round dance. Um, 
all they do is they do a number of circuits in a given distance, uh, sorry, in a given unit time. They just do a dance in a circle, basically. And you don't get any direction information, it's just distance, so I guess you know. So it's, it's 10 meters away, or it's 30 meters away. And so the number of circuits that they make, okay, in a unit time tells them how far away the food is. And it's proportional. So the more circuits per unit time, the further away the food is. Up to 50 meters. So you can see here it is right here. Here's the dancer going around, and there's the other ones watching. So they're actually watching this happen. They're learning. Well, information is being transmitted, let's say that. That's pretty damn neat. But all that's giving is distance. It's not giving direction. But it's still pretty neat. The interesting ones, the waggle bands, which was invented by an Australian band for children. <laughs> that was the Wiggles. And it was a joke. Um, okay, if the food source is greater than 50 meters away, and you can think about this, less than 50, it's like, well, you fly around a little bit, it's no big deal. Greater than 50, that's a pretty good distance. So you want to be able to go the right direction, not just the right distance. There are redundant sources of information here. So, the number of circuits, again, same sort of thing, gives distance. The number of waggles they do, and what they're doing is as they're dancing, their uh, back part of their body, I forget all the bug parts, thorax and abdomen and ass, I think is the part <laughs> of the I'm talking about, it waggles back and forth. Okay? And the number of sound bursts, so they're all three of those things are giving distance information. So it's redundant. Well, you think about that, again, that's going to make some sense. Why not have redundant information? What if one of the bees misses it, misses one of them? Right? So these are all going to be in proportion to the distance. With the round dance, if you remember, it was just a number of circuits. Now we've got circuits, waggles, and sound bursts. And again, the more of those <clears throat> per unit time, the further away the food source is. Pretty neat. Okay, questions so far? Now, this is where it gets interesting. The angle of the straight line portion of the dance gives the direction. So they do a circuit, and then they do a part of, like they do a circle bit, and then a part of a straight line. It's kind of like, well, you'll see the diagram in a second. Kind of like a race track. Straight part, big curve, straight part, big curve. Right. Now, the angle of the straight line portion of the dance actually gives the compass direction. And the up axis, it's up down in the hive, is where the sun is in the sky right now. So here's what all works. We know this, but the neat thing is 
by the way, if they're forced to dance in the sunlight, like if you if you catch catch them, and you can't they can't go back inside a hive, they'll actually dance and they'll do it in the direction of the sun. Like the sun will be, if it's 30 degrees off from the sun, they'll dance the the, the straight part portion will be 30 degrees off from the sun. If you put them in the hive in the dark, up just means direction of the sun, so they'll be 30 degrees off. So here you go. We have 20 degree angle from the sun to the food source. In the hive, the straight part where they're doing their waggling, right, is 20 degrees off from straight up and down. Then the circuits here give distance. So they're saying 800 meters, 20 degrees from the sun. That's pretty cool. And if you force them to dance out here, apparently on some sort of plywood, they'll actually use up, use the direction. Or sorry, use, use, use the actual direction. This, this, is, this is really neat stuff. Uh, Von Frisch uh, actually even did this with mechanical bees. Kind of like in, in Revolution. So mechanical bees can give information to real bees. So they're not using pheromones, they're using the behavior. Questions about how this works so far? Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's really quite neat. Okay, so let's reconstruct the evolution of the honeybee dance. Because that's a pretty complicated set of behavior. Let's see where it comes from. Okay, and this is all uh, a guy named Lindauer, a uh, German guy I'm guessing by the name. All honeybees dance. That's the first thing. So there's different species of honeybees. All the honeybees dance. All other aphids dance. And then we're going further up. So we got sort of a family, and then we're going further up. Apis florea uses a sort of open air dance floor. So this is the idea, like the when you take a chimifer as the common honeybee, the way you put them outside. But they're normally outside. Apis floria actually has an open air part of the hive or top, and they get up there and they watch. Somehow it seems like Zoolander. I don't know why. <laughs> so you can see they look very similar. That's Apis floria. And it's hard to see that because it's all distorted, but in fact, I don't know what that is. I'm pretty sure that. <laughs> That's the hive. Yeah. I don't know what that is. It's not very good. Now, there are other species of bees, other families of bees. So Trigona, that's another family. Um, they just get really excited and hum a lot. I got food. Yeah. See the joke there? Because the z. So they get really excited when they come back and they found food and they just buzz a great deal. They actually give out some food in the process. 
I found some food. Here, let me regurgitate some for you. It's deliciously regurgitated food. They're bugs. That's how they operate. If you don't believe me, here's some of my bee vomit, which is honey, by the way. So you think about it. You're eating honey. It's just delicious bee vomit. Um, okay. I just did that because I couldn't find a picture of Trigona, so I found one of those guys that does a beard of bees. <laughs> Why do people do that? You ever wonder about that? There's always some guy, one of those, like it's every so often there's one of those specials, Guinness Book of Records, largest bee beard, you know, bee beard. Why is that a thing? How did you start doing this? <laughs> did you wake up one morning and you know, it would be good if I put a whole bunch of bees in my face. I can't grow, this is for Beevember, they do this. They raise money for people that can't afford honey. I don't know. He's got a bee hairdo as well, which is kind of awesome. This guy's taking it far. Now others will leave a scent mark. Honeybees don't worry about this. Honeybees have a pretty damn good system. More... Uh, primitive, primitive just means older. Bee species, like the Dragona species, have different systems. Uh, Melipona, again, another family of bees, what they do is, is, is they do pulses of sound to get everybody excited. And then, then they will follow me. It's over here. So sort of lead them out. It's in this direction. It's right by the guy whose face we're all on. Actually, look at his face. It looks like he maybe just didn't happen on purpose. <laughs> I, I don't understand. Uh, so these are these are Melipona bees. You see, it really hard to tell the difference, right? Some, some species of those. Um, they just look like bees. Basically. Cool. Okay. The adaptive value of this, well, it's kind of obvious. Uh, the hive works as a whole, right? We talk about a hive mind sort of idea. They get the food quickly, they get others involved. It doesn't matter. Whatever any of these bee species, the dance language of the honeybee, of the common honeybee, is, is the most advanced, I guess. Probably the most recent as well. Um, we know why the hive works together. Oh, yeah. It's this, I used to do this in a different order. We already talked about that. Um, you don't have to lead others out and waste time. You don't have to have them unnecessarily get near predators, do you? Because they're saying, go, there's where the food is, then come home. I guess other animals can interpret this, the signal, but in the bee example, this seems exceedingly unlikely. I don't think there are, you know, hummingbirds flying, looking inside beehives going, well, I'm looking for nectar too, where is it? <laughs> That's the deal, right? Besides, if a hummingbird put his head in a, bird, in a beehive, he'd be dead from all the stings he'd get. 
So the adaptive value is pretty obvious. Now, the neat thing here is, by the way, the bees have a representation of their environment, honeybees. They know where stuff is. And there's a great experiment that Gould did. Not Stephen Jay Gould, uh, I always forget this Gould's first name. Kenny. I don't think that's his name. Um, okay, so he's got a river. So here's the river. There's, there's the waves. Just so you know. Here's the beehive. There's the beehive right there. And then here we have, and we're talking a kilometer across. It's like, you know, the St. Mary's River at its widest, okay? So you can see it, the states in your backyard. Sorry, <coughs> nothing. Um, pretty good trip. And it's like, it's, it's basically, it's super concentrated. It's like high fructose corn syrup. It's stuff bees just get out. And children. So you let the bees out, you take some bees across the river from this hive. They go back, they dance. Other bees come out, they go, no problem. Okay, why is that interesting? It really isn't really, you think about a kilometer, is not that big a deal. Well, it's interesting when you put a boat. Apparently, a poorly drawn sailboat in the middle and put more super concentrated sugar. Okay. Take the bees out to the boat. Bees love a good boat ride like anyone else. You leave them out there, they fly back, they dance, and nobody goes to those Nobody goes to the boat. It's closer, by the way. We think they would go, but they don't go because their representation is saying, there's a, there's a there's water there. You must be crazy. I'm not going to fly out to the middle of the water and find sugar. There isn't any. Your calculations are way off. So that shows that these actually have a representation of their environment, which is really quite cool. Very clever experiment. Question about that? Isn't it neat? It's pretty cool. Okay. Now, the problem with communication in animals, sometimes other animals get to sit quite often. Now, sometimes you want that if you're trying to scare them away, but oftentimes you're not trying to do that. So, you look at frogs, uh, Tungura frogs. The females have a call that's uh, it's called a wine chuck call. Okay? I don't know why, that's just what it's called. Okay? So the females like it. Males do it, females dig it. Bats also. Well, you know, bats don't like the call so much as they like the delicious taste of frog. Wow. So what's a frog to do? When they're alone, this is interesting, when they just got one male sitting there, he just whines. He doesn't do the whine chuck call. Because the frog, 
the, the notion here is he's more likely to get eaten. Right? If you're on your own, we talked about the idea uh, the other day about a selfish herd. The notion that living in a group is actually kind of a selfish act because if a predator shows up, you're one choice on the buffet. You're not the only choice. Right? Now here, when there's other males around, they go like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right here. Hey, ladies. Where it's here, it's like, right here. You're okay with that. Hope there's no bats listening. That's pretty cool. Okay. Sticking with frogs and toads, so male European toads, they, they call, just the same sort of idea. The biggest females are spawned. The problem is that if the female's really big, when she sort of chooses the male, he may not be able to mate with her because he's not big enough. He gets on top of her, but it's like they can't fit together. Let's say that. And yeah, that gets kind of ugly. That's even a fuzzy picture like that. Ooh. Hot frog on frog action. <laughs> so you got to be careful when you're when you're doing any kind of communication. It might be even that you get a case here where you can't you can't end up mating properly. You might get a case where you end up getting eaten, right? When you're communicating, so you got to be really careful. So some things about communication: uh, they communicate all the time. They're all factory. Communication, which we really talk about, so that's you know, sending out, uh, using chemical sense, send out odors, uh, various calls and other signals, and you know, the dance thing. Now, one of the take home messages here is others can learn to pick up on the, uh, the signal, and this is one of those things where, as I said the other day, evolution's like a predator prey evolution relationship is like an arms race. So, Every time the predator over evolutionary time learns to sort of pick up on the signal, the prey item has to either change its behavior or it dies, so it's going to change its behavior. So you've always, you're always in this sort of arms race situation. Um, none of these animals do language. We're special. There's, there's human exceptionalism. I mean, we really are a pretty exceptional animal. Nothing else does what we do. Right? Can is is chimp when chimps learn sign language? Sign language is it language? We could argue about that. I think most people would say no. Then again, that's what I think. So maybe I'm just biased thinking most people say that. The point of it still is that who teaches them? They didn't invent this on their own, right? So humans taught it to them. And of course, the problem when you teach language to apes is eventually you get a planet where apes evolve from men. You get the planet of the apes. So you have to be very careful, especially if you have an ape named Caesar. <laughs> Just saying. 
Spoiler alert, it's a movie from 1969. The recent remake was better than the first remake, which had that stupid ending. Yeah, sorry, you got a question or just playing fair? No, no, no. Just playing fair? Yes. <laughs> no worries. I thought maybe you had a question about the Planet of the Apes, because, you know, that would be on the test. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is something, it's a it's communication we do that's very special. There is other kind of communication we do, but um, we do things with body language, we do things with alerts. But because we have this incredible communication system, I think we ignore most of those signals. They, they are important, but we ignore them a lot. They, uh, and we, we're a lot less aware of them than we ought to be, perhaps. You know, uh, but we rely on, on, on you know, uh, syntactic, symbolic language. Questions about that? This is, these are good little mini topics. I like these little mini topics. All right. Speak of mating systems now. Um, for the most part, in a lot of animals, males' involvement in mating involves after the mating. Like the tail is over. Right? Which makes a great deal of sense, right? A lot of the time. Females pay for meeting a lot more. Uh, physio physiologically, they do. They may be actually laying an egg, or they may be, for example, in mammals, you have internal fertilization. They're going to actually carry this thing, an internal gestation. They're going to carry this thing around. And then post birth or hatch care if there is any. See, a male strategy can involve impregnating, mating with as many females as possible. Then they're really usually no matter what the species is. But the female can only usually do it once. So she's got to do it right. And in mammals, the post-hatch care is physiological, or the post-birth care is physiological, right? You actually make the food for your young. That's a physiological cost. We should expect polygamy more often than not. And that's where the male variance in number of mating partners is greater than the variance in females. That's what polygamy is. Several theories about polygamy, why it would show up. Um, there's resource defense polygamy. Basically, the male defends some good resource, and the female chooses a male that has 
uh, good territories, a good territory where he's got a lot of resources he can defend on. Okay? And if you've got a territory that can support more than one female, from the female's perspective, it doesn't matter if there's more than one female. I've got all these resources at my, at my uh, let's say fingertips, not all animals have fingers, waiting tips, claw, paw tips, various tips of things. Okay, hummingbirds works like this, it seems. Uh, in hummingbirds, the resource is going to be flowers. So nectar giving flowers. So we would expect a male that has uh, more flower floral density in his territory to end up with more mates. Hummingbirds are amazing little animals. Number of times you sort of sweat something away thinking it's a bee and you realize it was a little tiny bird, it's kind of awesome. So, how's it working with hummingbirds? Uh, it's pretty typical of a lot of little birds. Male sets up a territory and he excludes other males. The males then let females feed on the nectar in their territory. And it's basically, it's a, it's a transaction. And then the male copulates with the female. So basically, he buys her dinner. This is sort of like the nuptial gift in, in, in um, infant flies, right? Remember the gift where, where they give the little bit, bit of food, except it, it eventually evolved into a piece of, wire, of, uh, of uh, silk. But it's like, it's like that, except the gift in this case is stationary. You don't bring the gift to them. It's like, here you are. This is my gift to you, my lady. <laughs> because as you probably know, hummingbirds speak English with a very strange quasi-medieval diction. They say, my lady. Females of the breeding territory within, within within the male's territory. So they will have nests set up and they'll lay eggs, fertilize eggs. We're happy hummingbird eggs can't be that big. They don't look small. You like hummingbird caviar. Just little little tiny guys. Never thought of that the real here. Anybody ever seen a hummingbird egg? They've got it small. So we can talk about what's called, you know, specifically what hummingbirds generally call what's called the polygony threshold. So polygony may occur when the polygony threshold is crossed. All right. I'll explain this in a second. So migratory songbirds generally works like this. The male arrives at territories, the female then chooses her mate. Okay? So, male territory is very, very quality. So this is the quality of the territory, pretty good. And this is the reproductive success of a female. To be the primary female, because there's a, 
basically a pecking order, right, of females. There's a primary female she sets up first. Then a secondary female comes in. When does it make sense for a secondary female? When does it make sense to be a secondary female rather than a primary female? That's the question. And this idea of the polygamy threshold gets at it. For the primary female, uh, it goes up sort of exponentially, then it levels off. Because it doesn't matter how good the territory is, if there are more resources than you need. Right? Being a secondary female goes up like this. Because there's already resources being taken by the primary female. Right? So you've got to factor in, you don't get first chance at everything, you've got to factor that in when you're making this evolutionary decision. So does it make at this point, if the territory is this good, it's equally beneficial to be the primary female on this territory, on a territory with this quality, or a secondary female with a territory of this quality. Right? Makes sense? So it actually, it ends up that the reproductive success of the female is going to be the same if she's going to be secondary female in a really good territory, a Z territory, or a primary female on an X territory. And you could draw in a curve for being a tertiary female, but it's going to be a lot. Uh, it's going to be subtracting this and this. So that curve's going to go. Might be a linear curve, very slowly going up. Does this make sense? It's pretty neat. And, and in fact, the nice thing is uh, the data show that this model works when, you, when you're able to measure territory quality. So not all the males get more than one mate. All the females get one mate. This is the idea again. We define this by variance in number of mating partners, not completely, not just in the right number. Okay. <clears throat> so polygamy results from the difference in territories between uh, qualities available across the polygamy threshold. At some point, it actually becomes more profitable for a female to be a secondary female on a good territory compared to being a primary female on not so, on, on a, on a mid-range or not so good territory. far apart. This is what the polygamy threshold idea says. Or the curves are flat. In other words, the territory values are the same for everyone. Right. Very little quality, oh, there should be no cost there. Uh, very little quality, variation in quality of the male's uh, territories, green territories. That's when you should get monogamy. And you actually do get monogamy in a lot of birds, a lot of songbirds. Monogamy probably shows up in birds more than any other uh, class of animals.
So, Brewer and Wilson, uh, this is in, what do you mean this is? Uh, actually looked at this idea. So they test this idea. So here's their data. They get marsh birds where the quality varies greatly on a marsh, right? Versus non-marsh birds, there's not as much variation. The prediction is there should be much more monogamy in non-marsh living songbirds. Right? Because the territory quality varies greatly. So all you do is you find out these are great experiments because all you do, you actually don't have to collect data as much as you go read bird books and find out about their life history. So you have to actually go to the field. Marsh species, 44% are polygamous. Now that's pretty high compared to non-marsh species where 2% are polygamous. So for example, birds like chickadees, uh, birds like blue jays, crows, they're monogamous. Ducks aren't. Ducks are polygamous. Ducks are also rapists. No, ducks are bad animals. If we were to be moral about male duck behavior, we would, we would be locking all the male ducks away. They're bad. And delicious. <laughs> so that's about territory. There's other cases where, like in bison, you get something called female defense polygamy. You make as many females as you can, and you guard them from other males. So during the mating season, you just follow all your, all your harem around. You look out for other males. And if you're a good fighter, it's going to work. And if you're not as good a fighter, it's not going to work so well. So females will leave your home. So you still get the idea of the quality of the male determining how many mates he has. Right? So in essence, then the female gets to choose to be with the quality of. The most boring of the mating systems. When should it happen? When the young are in need of lots of parental care. Right? Because not only does the female have to give parental care, but so does the male have to give a lot of parental care if he wants his genes passed on. So humans come to mind, elephants come to mind, things that need take a long time to get mature. Human babies are useless. They can't do a thing. They have to be completely cared for, right? When territories or resources are very poor, everybody's got lousy territory or a lousy resource. The females, the idea of making a choice to be, well, I'll be a secondary female on this shitty territory, that's not going to happen. 
or that females actually enforce monogamy. Right. Now, one of the things that happens in humans, one of the theories of, of, of one of the interesting things about human mating is that we are the only species of mammal where the females don't go into heat. No estrus. Right? Which is good because it would be weird. But the females don't go into estrus. Well, one of the things it does, conceivably, is that it hides the fertility of females from males. So they don't know if they should mate with them or not, so they just stay with them all the time. So it may be a female-human strategy that's evolved to trick males into staying around. That's one theory. The other, there's another interesting theory is that it's actually females tricking themselves. Because childbirth is painful, and because we're humans, we're smart, we remember stuff like that. So females then are tricking themselves and like, no, I'm not going to get pregnant. Everything will be fine. And I would guess it's a little bit of both. Right? So it's females tricking males evolutionarily, and females tricking themselves evolutionarily. So females might enforce monogamy basically by doing something like what happens to humans, by tricking themselves and their mates into being monogamous. Right? So they're actually enforcing monogamy. Now, some monogamous species aren't that monogamous. So they're generally monogamous, but if you look at the variances, the males have more variance than the females. So, like, this happens a lot in birds, what are called extra pair copulations. It's cheating on your partner. If you want to, if you want to get all moral, right? You see, there's a lot in birds. Uh, those, those are some ducks. Uh, and usually these are forced copulations in ducks. Usually this isn't a female choice. This is males forcing this on females. It happens in the humans. <laughs> I've not had sexual relations with that woman. I finally nailed my Bill Clinton impression. It's just 13 years too late. <laughs> Were people afraid he was going to cheat on America too? Like he, on the side, become the president of Romania? Like I just don't see why it was anybody's business. Anyway, I don't think it was right. I think that's horrible. But what you think his answer should have been? That's none of your goddamn business. <laughs> right? I think that's what he should have said. That's between me, Hillary, and various other women. <laughs> That's... So what happens in these cases is what's called sperm competition. So if the female is unguarded by the male, or when the male can get away with it, 
we may end up with a case where the, the, there's sperm from two males or more inside the female. And then we have competition among sperm. It's not unlike the old cartoon Laugh Olympics. That's just for me, but I just thought I'd say that. Um, so what's happening is we have to have the sperm compete as a lot of different strategies available to males involved. Like in a lot of insects, after they copulate with the female, they insert a sperm plug, which is basically some like wax that they just put in the female. It's like, well, mine's in now. You made all you want, but it's not going to get past this. And then, of course, other males will remove the sperm plug. It's, it's incredible. The more sperm competition you have in a species, you may guess, you're going to have bigger testicles. Bigger testicles. And that's actually true. You've got to make more sperm. Because you're mating more. What happens in humans is fascinating. Um, and a book came out, geez, probably in 1999, later, early 2000s called Sperm Wars. And this is about human extraparacopulations. So how do they do this research? Well, put it out in the newspapers in the UK, stuff that's done in the UK. Are you cheating on your partner? Would you like to make some money? We just want to collect vaginal secretions and sperm. So wear this condom. And people did it. So what happens? When males are sleeping with their, sleeping with, having sex with their lover, so not their wife, but the, the person they're, you know, they're cheating with, There is more sperm in their ejaculate than there is when they have sex with their wife. Why would that be? Well, sperm coverage. There's also, when females are cheating with their, when they're with their husband, Okay. Their vaginal secretions are more acidic than they are when they're with their boyfriend. They're trying to kill their husband's sperm. This is interesting because the last thing people that are cheating on their spouses want is a child with the other person. Right? That's typically the last thing you want. Except that the function of sex is to reproduce. So even though they don't want this to happen, physiologically they're making it more likely. Now, of course, people are taking birth control pills. In this case, they're using condoms, so that's where they get the baby. The cool part of this, this is always with me, obviously. Um, I'll leave the coolest part until later. Yeah. Okay, next cool thing. Women that are with their boyfriends rather than their husbands have more orgasms. You might think, well, maybe that's why they're cheating on you. But the function of the female orgasm is to 
take sperm from the vagina through the cervix. We didn't know this for a very long time, up until the geez, mid 90s. And if you actually watch uh, using like uh, cameras, okay, a woman having the orgasm, there's a pool of semen here, and then it reaches down and grabs it and pulls it in. We didn't know this. We used to wonder why women had orgasms. Many men think it's men. Um, <laughs> somebody said that was funny. So, again, yeah, people have orgasms because they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, but it also has function. The men, when they're in their ejaculate, when they're cheating on their spouses, there is more killer sperm in their ejaculate. Killer sperm? What's this? It is sperm that is basically has a different function than sperm that's trying to get inside an egg. It's sperm that kills other sperm. Remember when you were in grade eight and they would show you the health uh, videos, right, about sex education? Right, and they'd show you how some of the sperm were malformed and they were just spinning around and bumping into each other and those were good healthy sperm. No, no, those are killer sperm. Those have a function. We have no awareness of this, of course. As I said, it actually goes exactly against what people want when they're cheating on their spouse. They don't want a kid, typically, with the other person. Questions on that? Where is the uh, when they're with their when they're cheating, when they're with the person they're cheating with. Okay. Yeah. So it's more likely for them to get. Yeah. 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 Do you exactly because they choose their um, Husbands versus their lovers for different reasons? It, who knows what it is? I mean, the idea, though, of an extra pair of population in the rest of the animal kingdom is to have more young. Right, but like, choose a husband or a long term partner for caregiving, and then maybe find somebody who's more. Oh, yeah, conceivably. That, that's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. I don't have a copy of the book, but I know, I'm pretty sure Dwayne has a copy. Uh, because he gave a presentation about this when I taught him animal behavior. They're really good to talk to. I still have a copy of it. What about polyandry? This is a really weird one. This is when it's one female, many males. This is exceedingly rare. In fact, it's almost that thing, it's like it's the exception that proves the rule. This only happens when there is a when there's complete sex role reversal. So, like in seahorses, where males get pregnant. Okay, so when the male actually carries the fertilized eggs. So the female has eggs, the male has sperm, they are fertilized, but then the female takes them up basically. Uh, and, and, and in essence, gestates. Um, it happens in spotted sandpipers, uh, which is kind of bird, there's one there, um, where the male sits on the eggs. So you don't just get the reversal of the mating system, you get complete sexual reversal of these sort of typical behaviors. 
think somebody's doing polyandry for their talk, so we'll hear more about it. Or at least seahorses, I'm not sure. It's fascinating stuff. Okay. There's many theories as to why different animals have different mating systems. Um, polygamy is by far the most common mating system. By far the most common system. When you think about it, the system actually, the system of polygamy correlates nicely with the whole, even the size of the gametes. Males make a bazillion, females make one, or very few. Females are big and slow and nutritious. Males are fat, live fast, and die young. So it actually even correlates with gamete size, which is kind of cool. One of the things you have to be careful about here, and I've talked about this a few times, is the idea of the naturalistic fallacy. Right? Don't start cheating on your girlfriend and say, no, 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 man, it's natural. This is the way it's supposed to be. There's a difference between natural and right. Those are two different things. So you've got to keep that in place. It's interesting, though, when you ask women um, and men, what do they rate as the worst thing about being uh, cheated on? For men, it's that the, the, woman, the woman had sex with another woman. Another man. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. I've, I've driven to lesbianism. Um, <laughs> to quote George Casanza, I've driven to lesbianism before we never do a mental institution. Um, for, for women, the worst part is the uh, emotional part. It's not that women don't care when guys have sex with other women. And it's not that men don't care when their wife or, or girlfriend has an emotional relationship with another man. I'm saying it's the ranking is different. And there's a lot of data on that. It's fascinating stuff. And that, again, sort of fits with the idea of, of, of having a human being system. Questions about this stuff? Right. Also pretty cool. Okay, so that ends my part of the course. Um,
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.